The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. From the book of John, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the fact that you are faithful. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. You keep your word to us, Lord. And so we look at this word and say, keep it, we pray. Bring it to pass. When Jesus walked the earth, he said, now is the judgment when the ruler of this world is cast out and I will become ruler. He was speaking of the cross, Lord, and it was coming. I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. But Lord, now we know that as he is lifted up, he draws people to himself and his kingdom is coming in this world. And because you are faithful, we pray and we ask you to keep that word, to make it so. Make it so in our individual lives. Make it so here in our community and in our church family. Let us see it here, lived out and experienced and expressed the kingdom, his rule, his reign. Make it so in the valley that we live in, in the state that we live in, in the, the world that we live in. Cast out the ruler of this world. Bring judgment on him and lift up Christ. A great Beautiful, merciful, gracious, strong, and good ruler. Lift him up, Father, we pray. Draw all men. Draw all sorts of men, of course he means. Draw people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Draw all men to him, men and women and boys and girls. Show us that this morning in the book of Acts, I pray. Move us, inspire us, give us hope to be involved in your work of doing that. May his kingdom come. May you give the nations to him. And may we experience that in joy. That's my prayer, Lord. And I pray it in his name and for his glory. Amen. ringing I'm trying to figure out here. Three weeks ago when we were last in the book of Acts, we were looking at the end of Acts chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16, and it would be helpful for us this morning to take a brief glance back and see what we were looking at there. Throughout those several chapters, we saw Paul and Barnabas traveling around the Mediterranean world, Cyprus, through what is modern-day Turkey. They were traveling around preaching the gospel of grace in city after city after city. 
The issue in those chapters, and many of them, one theme was, what is justification? How can a person be justified that is declared not guilty before God? We all start out guilty before him. How can we become not guilty? And they're traveling around explaining there is one glorious way, by faith alone in Christ crucified alone, by trusting in that work, not by trying to follow the law of Moses. They're preaching that message everywhere, and people are responding to it, largely Gentiles, responding to it and coming to faith, and churches are being planted in city after city. And they come back home to Antioch, and they find out that actually some people in the church don't like that message. Some people in the church were deeply concerned that Paul and Barnabas were traveling around not telling people that they had to become Jews first. Not telling them that they had to be circumcised and obey the law. They were really bothered by that. And a big dispute arose. What is the gospel? A central issue. And so they went up to Jerusalem to resolve it. That was Acts chapter 15 when they talked this over and it was resolved when finally several of the leaders of the church, Peter being a chief one, stood up and said, we know from history that God has intervened to prove, he referenced the story of Cornelius, to prove that we are justified by faith alone. This guy Cornelius was saved and he did not keep the law. So it was resolved. That is the gospel. It is a gospel of grace. Forgiveness before God by grace, by faith in Christ, not by works. That is the gospel. And then they began to spread that out back through all those Gentile churches. And what we saw at the end of 15, the beginning of 16, is that Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas this time, started to track back through where they had gone previously to spread this good news. You guys are on the right path. This is the gospel. Trust him. That brings us up to this morning's passage in the middle of Acts chapter 16. What we're going to see here is the gospel now reaches into Europe for the first time, crosses into the European continent, and produces more amazing fruit. I'm going to read all of Acts chapter 16. It's a, it's a very long passage, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it in pieces and explain little bits of it as we go along, and then make two overarching points at the end of that. Sound like I'm speaking in a tin can here. I hope that doesn't bother you. <laughs> it's kind of bothering me a little bit. <laughs> Acts 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, and they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The passage begins with Paul and his partners Silas and Timothy passing through these regions where they'd previously planted churches. And as they told them that they were on the right path, they decided, let's continue on and, and continue evangelizing these other cities over here in what was called Asia, Western Turkey. So they're intending to go west, maybe headed towards Ephesus. But somehow the Spirit of God stops them, forbids them. So they decide, well, 
let's go north. And so they turn north and march up through what is Turkey today until the Spirit of God stops them there and forbids them from going all the way north into Bithynia. And then they decide to turn west again and head all the way over to the coast at Troas. This is a several hundred mile walk through some pretty rough terrain. And it seems like they're not doing a lot of preaching, they're just traveling. There's no no accounting of them stopping to evangelize anywhere. It seems like they're trying to figure out where are we supposed to go. Clearly God's involved in saying not here and not here. Well, where? And then they receive a vision in Troas, a Macedonian man saying, come over. Come over to Europe, to Macedonia. And they concluded we should go over there. Now, as an aside, don't try to use this passage to figure out how does God lead us in decision-making in life. There just isn't enough here to be helpful on that line. He intervenes somehow in these guys' lives, clearly. The Spirit intervenes, but we don't know if it was miraculous intervention. The one time that we do know he, how he intervened, it was a miraculous vision. Not, not a dream, but a vision. And if you ever receive a vision from God... If that ever happens, then do talk it over with some other people and check it against the scriptures and obey it. But that just is not going to happen very often. So there's not a lot of help here as to how do we discern God's will. So don't use this passage for that. It's not here in the Bible to teach us how to know how God's leading. It's in the Bible to tell us that God led them. God's up to something. They're on a several hundred mile walk on purpose. God is directing them very clearly to someplace they don't know yet where until they see the vision, but he's up to something. And so they go, they cross over to Macedonia. And notice now that it's a we crossed over after we discerned that God was leading us. Luke, the author of the book, has now joined them. If you look in verse 8, it's they went to Troas, and verse 9, we left. So now there are four people here. There are Paul and Silas, Timothy, and Luke, the author. Verses 11 to 15 then. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So they sail from Troas, northwest, across the Aegean Sea. And they find their way to Philippi, which, as it says, is a Roman colony, which means that there would have been a large military presence there and there would have been a whole bunch of Romans. Many retired soldiers lived in Roman colonies on on purpose to make them secure places. So when the gospel first reaches Europe... It reaches there in a context of a Gentile city with a whole bunch of Romans and almost no Jews. There aren't even enough Jews that only required 10 men to form a synagogue, and there aren't even enough Jews to form a synagogue. So on the Sabbath day, this little missionary group goes down to the riverbank where they expect that those few Jews that there are will be gathered to pray. And they find a few there, 
mostly women. And one in particular that they find is the first of three individuals who are the focus of this chapter. They find Lydia. She's a foreigner. She's, she's not from around there. She's from actually back in the region of Lydia, the town of Thyatira, which incidentally is in the region that the Spirit led them to skirt. Some interesting divine guidance here is as if God is hunting down Lydia. She's not at home. Where is she? I'm going to go chase her down in Philippi, where she's living. So they meet this Lydia, who is a wealthy businesswoman. She's a trader in what was rare and expensive purple goods. Her region was famous for that. She's a dealer in those things. She's wealthy because of that. She's not from around there, but she's a Gentile attempting to follow Judaism. She's a worshiper of God. We've seen these sorts of folks before. People who kind of drew up close to Judaism but didn't actually fully embrace it. She has some sense of the pagan religion she was raised in is not sufficient. It's not right. What is? Well, she's drawn to this God of the Bible, of the Old Testament, but not fully. She hasn't converted to Judaism. She's still unsettled in some way. She's there worshiping, and they run into her, and they tell her about the Jewish Messiah. And what happens? The Lord opens her heart. She believes and is converted. She invites them to their home, so they establish a missionary base in her home. It appears that she's probably a single woman as well because she invites four men to her home, and there's still no mention of any man there. Not, not certain, but it seems that she's a single household head, a woman, a businesswoman. The first individual in our story. Move to verses 16 to 24. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So the main character of the first section is Lydia, this wealthy businesswoman, the main character in the second section is her total opposite, a slave girl who's demon-possessed. Paul and company have a lot of contact with her as they're leaving Lydia's house and regularly going to this place of prayer. They're traveling back and forth through the town, and she evidently is shadowing them, constantly crying out, these men are messengers of the Most High God, which is true, telling you the way of salvation, which is true. So what's the problem? This is like free PR. Why does Paul get upset about this? Well, I'll say a little more about this next week when I come back to this same chapter and look at some more details here. But suffice it to say for right now that the, the main problem is not that she was annoying or something like that. 
She was constantly like right in their ear yelling. It, it, it's not that. The, the main problem is related to the inappropriateness of letting the demonic validate the divine. Free PR, yes. But Jesus can take care of his own PR. He doesn't need the demons. As you read through the Gospels, that happens repeatedly. When Christ casts out a demon, he says, and they proclaim him the Most High or the Son of the Most High or something like that, he tells them to be quiet. I don't need you approving of me. I'm not going to stand on your recommendation. So he tells them, silence, commands them, come out. In the name of Christ, not because he has any own, of his own authority, Paul casts him out which greatly upset their owners because she was their cash cow. And so they take it to the magistrates, not arguing, this hurts our business, but this is illegal. It's not, but that's the argument they make. These men are starting an insurrection. They're trying to lead the city astray, which gets the magistrates' attention. One thing leads to another. They beat them and throw them in jail. The story leaves what happened to the girl pretty quickly. We don't know seems to imply, though, because it's between two stories about conversion and it is a physical deliverance, which very often mirrors spiritual deliverance, often in the book of Acts, it seems to imply that not only was she just physically delivered from demonic control, that she was physically and spiritually delivered from demonic control, spiritually delivered into the kingdom of Jesus. It seems to imply that, though it doesn't say it clearly. The second person here is at least physically delivered in the name of Jesus. Move on to the third. 25 to 34. About midnight, these guys are in prison now, and about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke, and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So they were imprisoned after being beaten, and they're locked up in stocks, which would be probably a large piece of wood that would clamp down. There'd be a hole which you'd put your foot in, but you couldn't move your legs. It was designed to not only secure a prison so you couldn't run away, but also to cause some discomfort. You're kind of locked in one position for a long time. So they're locked in stocks after being severely beaten with rods, and they're singing praises, which got everybody's attention because that's really odd. But it drew the attention of the people. Who are these guys? And then the earthquake comes, which seems to validate, in the eyes of probably the whole populace, seems to validate these folks cast out a demon, we beat them and threw them in jail, and the gods are speaking because they just broke apart the jail and let them go. 
something that would speak to a mystical mind there. Maybe that's why nobody ran away. We're not sure. But nobody ran away when the jail was busted open. The jailer, though, of course, assumes that everyone has. And he, he, being a jailer in a Roman colony, he's a a former Roman soldier, and he knows what Roman law says about soldiers and jailers who lose prisoners. They are to be killed. Imagine this guy. You read read through this story, and it just moves along real quick. He's about to commit suicide. Imagine that you go to bed minding your own business, You're awakened in the night by an earthquake and you suddenly realize that in a few hours I'm going to be publicly humiliated and beheaded. And I didn't have anything to do with anything. It would be a shocking and life-changing turn of events. He's he's brought instantly to the point of, of tremendous despair and he realizes the only way out of this is for me to take my own life now to avoid the tremendous shame and awful nature that's going to happen to me in the morning. So he draws his sword and is about to kill himself, and Paul intervenes. No, stop, we're all here. The jail not only was broken open by the earthquake, the jailer's heart was broken open by the earthquake, and he's converted now by Christ. He and his whole household are saved. He's brought from hopelessness to joy. Let me finish. Verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. Probably had come to think twice because of the earthquake. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison And do they now throw us out secretly? Oh, no, 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 no. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia first, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. The story winds down with probably the earthquake was seen as an omen and the people have decided, let's let these guys go and just be done with this. Let's not mess with these guys anymore. But Paul now pulls out his trump card and says, you know, you broke Roman law by beating us, Roman citizens, without a trial. That's a highly serious offense. Citizenship in, in the The empire was highly valued because it had protections like this. And they just broken this law, and the magistrates realized, we're we're in a world of hurt here. And so suddenly their posture becomes very polite towards these messengers of Christ. And they ask them kindly, please don't turn us in, please leave. The details are there, but the effect that it has is that it closes out this story with Paul and company, head held high, walking throughout the city to say goodbye to their friends, casually leaving, not skulking out the back door. Christ has moved into each of these three people's lives and delivered them, and at the end of the story, he leaves triumphant. That's the whole of the chapter, chapter 16. Obviously, there's a lot of information there, and I've kind of skipped over the top in some ways, 
But I need to deal with the whole passage this week. Next week we'll go back and look in a little more detail at some things. But I need to deal with the whole passage because there are a couple of large overarching points that involve all three of these stories. They can't be separated from one another. So I'm going to make two large observations and then briefly tie them together at the end. First observation that we see in this, looking at this whole chapter, big bite here, it's about God, that God is working to lift up Christ in all of the world. Emphasis on God. God is working to lift up Christ in all of the world. You see, it's spreading from Jerusalem to Antioch to Cyprus to Turkey. Now it's in Europe. And how is it getting there? God. We see the whole Trinity involved here. Father, Son, and Spirit, all of God is driving the gospel everywhere around the world, working. He's working to lift up Christ. And that is tremendously important for us to keep in mind and to be clear on so that we don't become confused or discouraged as we think about our responsibility in lifting up Christ in all the world. Because we have a responsibility in that too. Look through the book of Acts, the book of John before that, and we see again and again we are a people under orders. We've talked about that before, repeatedly. It's all over the Bible. We are a people called to make Christ an issue everywhere in all the world. It's evident here again. Paul and Silas and then Timothy and Luke and then Lydia in her household and the jailer with his household. Christians are spreaders. That's what we are. We're spreaders. Called to take Christ out, not hold him in. But that's really hard. Have you noticed? That's really hard. It's confusing, can be discouraging. It is for me at least. Not seeing any nodding out there. Maybe you all have that under control. It's really hard for me. It's difficult for me to pay attention, to be mindful of, to stay sharp and alert for opportunity to spread Christ. It's, it's difficult for me, at least, to take the initiative to help create opportunity to spread Christ. It's difficult to know how to respond in the opportunity. It's difficult to know how to respond in the opportunity when the people that I'm talking with don't like me, maybe even figuratively take me before the authorities and beat me and imprison me. That's never happened, but figuratively speaking, we face persecution sometimes. It's really difficult that we're called to be spreaders. As Paul would write later, who is worthy, who is competent for such a task? Thanks be to God that God is working to lift up the name of Christ everywhere. This chapter is making that point. Notice how the passage repeatedly reveals the hand of God pressing the issue. Verses 6 and 10. Who is determining where the gospel is preached? God clear. That's why that whole paragraph is there to make crystal clear that God is steering the gospel. It is absolutely zero coincidence that Paul finds himself on a riverbank in Europe talking to a woman from somewhere else. It's all under the, the clearly sovereign, divine leading of God. You can't plan that sort of thing. God works it out. God carries the gospel all the way to her ears on that riverbank on that Sabbath morning. 
And he carries it to her ears because he intends to carry it all the way into her heart. He's not just going to lift up Christ in front of her so that she can see and intellectually know. He lifts up Christ within her so that she will believe. Who opens her heart? God does. The preacher doesn't, though he must preach. She doesn't even, though she must listen. The Lord opened her heart. It says, so write the text so that she could pay attention to what Paul was saying. She understood him, but she didn't understand him. Until the Lord opened her heart. This is entirely consistent with how the rest of the book of Acts describes God's working and human belief. Every time our God-inspired author Luke goes to talk about where does belief come from, how does conversion happen, every time he goes to explain that, he roots it in the sovereign action of God. We're repeatedly called to repent. Twice, he tells us, God gives repentance. We're called to believe, and all who believe will be saved. And he tells us on that one, too, chapter 13, he appoints people to believe. And here, he opens her heart to hear and understand. God is at work to lift up Christ in her eyes in the story of Lydia. What about the slave girl? Same thing. Who reigns over her when we first meet her? Demons and human masters exploiting her for their gain. Exploiting her, sorry. What's it like to be demon-possessed? To have a spirit of divination, to be controlled by another spirit? Terrible. But her masters say, this is great. We love this. They're exploiting her. She's doubly ruled. And Jesus moves in and sets her free. Christ. Paul doesn't say, I cast the demon out. In the name of Jesus, get out. Paul only has derived authority. There is a king that moves in and says, you leave. I'm taking over. I'm stepping in. That lifts up Christ. When the people of Philippi throw him in jail, try to silence them by beating them and locking them up, who comes to the fore? God, when he breaks open the prison. Who comes to the fore in the Philippians' heart, the Philippian jailer's heart? What do I have to do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Jesus lifted up again. God is at work. Whether it be steering the gospel to the city, casting out demons, earthquakes that break open prisons and break open hearts, God is at work lifting up Christ in front of these three people's eyes and in their hearts. The hand of God seen at every turn. What are we supposed to do with that? Not say, thank goodness God's doing it, so I don't have to. Thank goodness that God is working to lift up Christ because it's pretty difficult, and I would prefer he do it I'm going to go take a nap and find out what's on TV. Maybe there's some golf on so I can take a nap and watch TV. <laughs> Don't use this point like that. It's not, it's not intended to be a cop-out. It's intended to be hope-giving. We want to avoid confusion so that we see it's not up to me. 
I don't determine ultimately. These guys, are, they're planning, they're thinking when they're walking here and there. They're not just getting up and their feet taking over control of their bodies and they have no idea what's happening, but they find themselves moving hundreds of miles down the road. They're planning and they're thinking as they're making choices about where to go and God is directing their steps. We don't want to become confused and think that it, this is, it's up to me. But we don't want to become disheartened and thinking, man, it's up to me, oh man. We're supposed to use this, this observation that God is at work to give us hope so that we say, God will work to lead. God will work to open hearts. God will provide for our needs. God will cast down all spiritual opposition in time. God will sustain our hearts amidst suffering. God will move heaven and earth even to liberate his messengers and to spread his message. God will defend us in the face of civil authorities. God will do this. God is up to something. God is at work. Therefore, I can join him in his successful enterprise because he's going to do it through us. He has chosen. He could write it in the heavens. He could do that, but he's chosen to do it through his people. What a privilege that he wants to live all of us. Do you see that? There's a responsibility and a great privilege. If you've ever been involved in somebody coming to faith, you know it's marvelous. And he lets you in on that. It's not up to you. He's going to do it. He's going to use you, so do it. Work both of those things together to not be confused and to not be discouraged. We should realize God is at work lifting up Christ in all the world. It's the first observation from looking at this whole chapter. The second one is along the lines of the intended results of God's work. So it's, it's implied, but I'm going to make it explicit here. Here's a second observation. God is working to lift up Christ because he has a heart to deliver people and to form a new people. Why is he doing this? Why is he lifting up Christ all around the globe? Why is he doing that? Because he has a heart to deliver people, real life, individual human beings. He has a heart on purpose. It's not just incidental. He's striving to do that, to deliver individual people and to form a new people, a group, a community, a body. Now, I think for a lot of us, this is probably entirely obvious. Of course, God's, a, God's about saving people. Yeah, sure. It may be obvious, but I would suggest that it's a central point to this whole chapter. It's here for us to think about it again. The effect of the spread of the gospel is the focus here. Do you notice that the nuts and bolts of the gospel are not actually even written in this chapter? A lot of other places in the book of Acts, when we have stories of them traveling around and doing missionary work and preaching here and there, you see the sermon, or at least some hint of the sermon. The point being in those places that we're supposed to look at the actual gospel and think about what, does, what is this saying, what's the truth here, here, that's all skipped over. It's just touched on in very vague terms like what Paul said. 
She paid attention to what Paul said. Or the way of salvation, says the demon-possessed slave girl. Or even verse 31, that's a very famous verse. Notice verse 31 is not the gospel. It's the response to the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your whole household. If that's all you hear, you have no idea what he's talking about. Who's Jesus? How is he the Lord? Why should I believe in him? It's not the gospel, which is why the very next verse, verse 32, says that he went on to speak the word of the Lord to him. He started at the end and then gave him the body. The gospel is not actually in this chapter. This is focused on the effect of the gospel. People delivered. Gathered them together to form a new people. You have to know what the gospel is. And as I said in the beginning, the several preceding chapters have been explaining what the gospel is. You have to know that coming to this chapter. You have to realize that each one of us individually, born before God as sinners, that's you, it's me, born before God as sinners, lawbreakers in heart before we're lawbreakers in deed. We stand before him guilty and we cannot do anything. You can't do a single thing to make yourself worthy before God. Which is why God acted to provide a way for you to be worthy for him. It's why God came to earth. God the Son came to earth and took on a body to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's the gospel in a nutshell, but it's not actually in this chapter because, as I said, we're focusing on the effect. The emphasis is on what is accomplished when Christ is lifted up. Essentially, deliverance. Three really different people. Each of them facing really different circumstances and problems in life. All of them an effect of the fall. All of them coming from sin and how it shattered the world. Each of them in a different place, all of them delivered by Christ. Lydia, she's a religious seeker. She comes to the riverbank. She's religious. She's already traveled from one religious background to another, but she hasn't totally embraced that one. She's still looking. She's socially very secure, wealthy. She owns a home in a foreign city. She's good to go culturally religiously wondering, where's the Messiah? And will that be what I'm looking for? Jesus delivers her. And the slave girl from a totally different setting. The slave girl being used by others to make money for themselves from her misery. She's not even in control of her own life, spiritually or physically. Exploited. Jesus delivers her. And the jailer, he's kind of in the middle somewhere. He's just an ordinary guy. He's just minding his own business, doing his job well, and suddenly the circumstances of life turn and bring him to the point of utter despair. And Christ moves in and delivers him to joy. From hopelessness to joy, from exploitation to freedom, from confusion and seeking to answers, in each of these little circumstances, they're all a little different Jesus delivers. 
Why did God go through all the work of leading the gospel on a several hundred mile journey up here to Philippi? Because he intends to deliver these people and their households and others. Do you see God's heart there? Do you see God's heart there? He wants to deliver people. He is not content to leave them enslaved and confused. We need that heart as a church. I need that heart. But if you're not a Christian, do you see God's heart there for you? You can write your story into Acts 16. You're not exactly like any of them, but are you looking? Are you, are you confused? Are you looking for some spiritual answers? Are you wondering? Do you find yourself oppressed in some way, being used? I mean, this woman's at the bottom of the social ladder in a number of different ways. Or are you just an ordinary guy facing a circumstance that's dramatically changed your life, looking for hope? You can write your story into this. What do you do? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Turn your heart to him. You can do that right now. You can do that this afternoon. You can do that tomorrow. But don't wait too long to do that because I don't know that there actually is a tomorrow or that there actually is a this afternoon for you. None of us do. Turn to Christ. Believe in him and he will deliver you. But he won't just deliver you to an individual faith. He will deliver you to a people, which is good news. Think about these, these folks here. How many lines are there between them? There's a gender line. There's an ethnic line. There's a religious background line. There's an economic line. There's a, a culture line. All the lines of humanity are represented here between these folks, and at the end, they are called, if you look at the very last verse, visited Lydia, and when he had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. All these radically different folks get pulled together and become a brotherhood, a, a sisterhood, people, a family. Now, a lot of us come from all kinds of messed up families. Don't in, don't interpret this through your, your experience. Think about what a family is supposed to be. Brothers means people who love and accept and live for, give themselves for, stand beside, encourage one another. These folks would have had nothing to do with each other in life. I mean, perhaps Lydia would have owned the slave girl, but that would have been about it. But now they are drawn together into a family. One of the, the major, one of the major effects of the fall, the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3, one of the first things that happens is that society breaks apart. First thing that happens is that the family falls apart. A brother kills a brother. And then you read the next chapter and you've got all kinds of junk that starts to happen. Like a little... We have, a, we have a crack on our windshield that began with a, a little ding up in the corner that we couldn't see, and now it's spidered out, and it is all across the windshield. It's not as bad as it could be. I guess it's not multi-branched, but it's spreading. It's growing. You've had this happen. That began in Genesis 3 in the world, and it hasn't stopped. 
But in this new people, it does stop. God stops the crack from spreading and begins to buff it out. And he means to one day remove it entirely. We're people in process, yes, but we are a new people. Formed by God, delivering individuals and delivering a corporate entity. It's a beautiful thing. If you come to Christ, he'll deliver you personally and he will deliver you back into community where you don't have to put on a face and pretend. In fact, shouldn't put on a face and pretend. You don't have to hide and try to act a certain way. You don't have to live in isolation. Deliver you personally to himself and then to a people. It's a glorious thing. Come to him. Let me turn that and speak to the church for, for a minute. Do you, we see God's heart here, God's heart of trying to deliver people. It's after that. Do you share that heart? I know you know you're supposed to. Do you share that heart? I'm surprised by how little that there is in me. Time to time, I find myself totally unaware of other people. What about you? Do you see people in this valley do you see people at the restaurant you're going to go to after church today? Your neighbors that you're going to return to this afternoon? Do you see people as in need of deliverance? If you lived next door to the jailer, I doubt you would have noticed much of anything about him. If you lived next door to Lydia, maybe the slave girl, you might have seen something. It's common for us to not look at people spiritually with spiritual eyes. It's common to say, she's wealthy, she's got a nice house, things are going pretty, pretty good. Inside she's looking. Do you see people as in need of deliverance? And do you view this community of people as a new people that's supposed to be like what I was just describing. A place where you don't have to hide. A place where either you yourself don't have to hide or you shouldn't be putting something on other people that makes them want to hide. Create some standard of you've got to live up to this to be good enough. We have to be both concerned about other people and concerned about this body because it's what God's called us to. And how we are concerned about the two of them influences how God works in their lives. He does, because he uses people. We can't say, to loop back to the first point, that God's going to do that, so it doesn't matter what I think about people, and it doesn't matter what, how I behave in this body. It does. We see God's heart here. God's lifting up Christ because he has a heart to deliver people and to deliver people to a people. Do you have that heart? If not, two things. Repent, because he should. Christ walked the earth and looked at people as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. That's Christ-likeness, to so look at people like that. Repent. But secondly, how, how do you develop that heart in you? 
Well, very briefly, lift up Christ in your own eyes. We become something different by beholding Christ. We become like Christ by looking at Christ. We become like him in his compassion by looking at him being compassionate. Lift up Christ in your eyes. Repent. Turn to him. My hope, my prayer is that we as a people, and I say this for myself too, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about us, that we as a people would become a people concerned about other people, concerned about a community as well as concerned about individuals. First observation, God is working to lift up Christ in the world. Second observation, God is working to lift up Christ in the world because he has a heart to deliver people and to form a new people. Put those things together. We find, as I read earlier from John 12, Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. What we see here in Acts 16 is Christ lifted up, drawing all people to himself. Join with him in his work. We're going to move towards communion now, in which we celebrate the gospel, the effects of which we see here in this chapter. But move towards communion. As we do, we're going to have a, a moment of silent prayer here. So think about whatever the Lord's been speaking to you. Address that. Talk to him. And then I'll close this time in prayer, and we will turn to communion. Father, because of your faithfulness, we come and ask you again to keep your promise to give the nations to your Son. We ask you to fulfill the promise of Jesus. We, talk about, we talked about the rule of this world being cast out and he moving in. Lord, would you draw people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, all people, draw them to him, lift him up, use us in that process. Align our hearts, Lord. Give us courage, encouragement, you were involved in it. It's you driving it. Work in us to give us eyes for people around us and to care that they be saved. To realize their lostness. To want to be involved in doing something about that. We're under your authority, Lord. We, we trust in that. We acknowledge that. And we pray, align our hearts with your vision. Thank you, Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 
South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.